32. Tori of the lover who passes from morbidness to ecstasy, then to anger and murder, followed by insanity and recovery. This was Tennyson's favorite, and among his friends he read aloud from it more than from any other poem. Perhaps if we could hear Tennyson read it, we should appreciate it better, but, on the whole, it seems overwrought and melodramatic, even its lyrics, like, Come into the garden, Maud, which make this work a favorite with young lovers, are characterized by prettiness rather than by beauty or strength. Perhaps the most loved of all Tennyson's works is In Memoriam, which, on account of both its theme and its exquisite workmanship, is one of the few immortal names that were not born to die. The immediate occasion of this remarkable poem was Tennyson's profound personal grief at the death of his friend Helen, as he wrote lyric after lyric. Inspired by this sad subject, the poet's grief became less personal, and the greater grief of humanity mourning for its dead and questioning its immortality took possession of him. Gradually the poem became an expression, first, of universal doubt, and then of universal faith, a faith which rests ultimately not on reason or philosophy but on the soul's instinct for immortality. The immortality of human love is the theme of the poem, which is made up of over 100 different lyrics. The movement takes us through three years, rising slowly from poignant sorrow and doubt to a calm peace and hope, and ending with a noble hymn of courage and faith, a modest courage and a humble faith, love-inspired, which will be a favorite as long as saddened men turn to literature for consolation. Though Darwin's greatest books had not yet been written, science had already overturned many old conceptions of life, and Tennyson, who lived apart and thought deeply on all the problems of his day gave this poem to the world as his own answer to the doubts and questionings of men. This universal human interest, together with its exquisite form and melody, makes the poem, in popular favor at least, the supreme threnody, or elegiac poem, of our literature, though Milton's Lycidas Island from the critical viewpoint, undoubtedly a more artistic work. The idols of the kin ranks among the greatest of Tennyson's later works. Its general subject is the Celtic legends of King Arthur and his Knights of the Round Table, and the chief source of its material is Malora's Mort Durther. Here, in this mass of beautiful legends, is certainly the subject of a great national epic, yet after 400 years, during which many poets have used the material, the great epic is still unwritten. Milton and Spencer, as we have already noted, considered this material carefully, and Milton alone, of all English writers, had perhaps the power to use it in a great epic. Tennyson began to use these legends in his Mort Durther 1842, but the epic idea probably occurred to him later, in 1856, when he began Geraint and Enid, and he added the stories of Vivian, Elaine, Guinevere, and other heroes and heroines at intervals, until Balin, the last of the idols, appeared in 1885. Later these works were gathered together and arranged with an attempt at unity. The result is in no sense an epic poem, but rather a series of single poems loosely connected by a thread of interest in Arthur, the central personage, and in his unsuccessful attempt to found an ideal kingdom. Entirely different in spirit is another collection of poems called English Idols, which began in the poems of 1842, and which Tennyson intended should reflect the ideals of widely different types of English life. Of these varied poems, Dora, the gardener's daughter, Ulysses, Loxley Hall, and Sir Galahad are the best, but all are worthy of study. One of the most famous of this series is The Malcarden, 1864, in which Tennyson turns from the evil knights, 
from lords, heroes, and fair ladies, to find the material for true poetry among the lowly people that make up the bulk of English life, its rare melody, its sympathy for common life, and its revelation of the beauty and heroism which hide in humble men and women everywhere, made this work an instant favorite, judged by its sales alone, it was the most popular of his works during the poet's lifetime, Tennyson's later volumes, like the Ballads 1880 and Demeter 1889, should not be overlooked, since they contain some of his best work, the former contains stirring war songs, like The Defense of Lucknow, and Pictures of Wild Passionate Grief, like Rispa, the latter is notable for Romney's Remorse, a wonderful piece of work, Merlin and the Gleam, which expresses the poet's lifelong ideal, and several exquisite little songs, like Be Throstle, and Be Oak which show how marvelously the aged poet retained his youthful freshness and inspiration. Here certainly is variety enough to give us long years of literary enjoyment, and we need hardly mention miscellaneous poems, like The Brook and The Charge of the Light Brigade, which are known to every schoolboy, and Wages and The Higher Pantheism, which should be read by every man who thinks about the old, old problem of life and death. Characteristics of Tennyson's Poetry If we attempt to sum up the quality of Tennyson, as shown in all these works, the task is a difficult one, but three things stand out more or less plainly. First, Tennyson is essentially the artist. No other in his age studied the art of poetry so constantly or with such singleness of purpose, and only Swinburne rivals him in melody and the perfect finish of his verse. Second, like all the great writers of his age, he is emphatically a teacher, often a leader, in the preceding age. As the result of the turmoil produced by the French Revolution, lawlessness was more or less common, and individuality was the rule in literature. Tennyson's theme, so characteristic of his age, is the reign of order, of law in the physical world, producing evolution, and of law in the spiritual world, working out the perfect man. In memoriam, idols of the king, the princess, here are three widely different poems, yet the theme of each. So far as poetry is a kind of spiritual philosophy and weighs its words before it utters them, is the orderly development of law in the natural and in the spiritual world. This certainly is a new doctrine in poetry, but the message does not end here. Law implies a source, a method, an object. Tennyson, after facing his doubts honestly and manfully, finds law even in the sorrows and losses of humanity. He gives this law an infinite and personal source and finds the supreme purpose of all law to be a revelation of divine love, all earthly love, therefore, becomes an image of the heavenly. What first perhaps attracted readers to Tennyson, as to Shakespeare, was the character of his women, pure, gentle, refined beings, whom we must revere as our Anglo-Saxon forefathers revered the women they loved, like Browning, the poet had loved one good woman supremely, and her love made clear the meaning of all life. The message goes one step farther, because law and love are in the world. Faith is the only reasonable attitude toward life and death, even though we understand them not. Such, in a few words, seems to be Tennyson's whole message and philosophy. If we attempt now to fix Tennyson's permanent place in literature, as the result of his life and work, we must apply to him the same test that we apply to Milton and Wordsworth, and, indeed, to all our great poets and ask with the German critics, what new thing has he said to the world or even to his own country? The answer I learned frankly, that we do not yet know surely, 
that we are still too near Tennyson to judge him impersonally, this much, however, is clear, in a marvelously complex age, and amid a hundred great men, he was regarded as a leader, for a full half-century he was the voice of England, loved and honored as a man and a poet, not simply by a few discerning critics, but by a whole people that do not easily give their allegiance to any one man, and that, for the present, is Tennyson's sufficient eulogy, Robert Browning 1812-1889 How good is man's life, the mere living, how fit to employ all the heart and the soul and the senses forever enjoy, in this new song of David, from Browning's soul, we have a suggestion of the astonishing vigor and hope that characterize all the works of Browning, the one poet of the age who, after 30 years of continuous work, was finally recognized and placed beside Tennyson, and whom future ages may judge to be a greater poet, perhaps, even, the greatest in our literature since Shakespeare. The chief difficulty in reading Browning is the obscurity of his style, which the critics of half a century ago held up to ridicule. Their attitude towards the poet's early work may be inferred from Tennyson's humorous criticism of Sordello. It may be remembered that the first line of this obscure poem Island who will may hear Sordello's story told, and that the last line Island who would has heard Sordello's story told. Tennyson remarked that these were are the only lines in the whole poem that he understood, and that they were evidently both lives. If we attempt to explain this obscurity, which puzzled Tennyson and many less friendly critics, we find that it has many sources. First, the poet's thought is often obscure or else so extremely subtle that language expresses it imperfectly, thoughts hardly to be packed into a narrow act, fancies that broke through language and escaped. Second, Browning is led from one thing to another by his own mental associations, and forgets that the reader's associations may be of an entirely different kind. Third, Browning is careless in his English, and frequently clips his speech, giving us a series of ejaculations, as we do not quite understand his processes of thought. We must stop between the ejaculations to trace out the connections. Fourth, Browning's allusions are often far-fetched, referring to some odd scrap of information which he has picked up in his wide reading, and the ordinary reader finds it difficult to trace and understand them. Finally, Browning wrote too much and revised too little. The time which he should have given to making one thought clear was used in expressing other thoughts that flitted through his head like a flock of swallows. His field was the individual soul never exactly alike in any two men, and he sought to express the hidden motives and principles which govern individual action. In this field he is like a miner delving underground, sending up masses of mingled earth and ore, and the reader must sift all this material to separate the gold from the dross. Here, certainly, are sufficient reasons for Browning's obscurity, and we must add the word that the fault seems unpardonable, for the simple reason that Browning shows himself capable, at times of writing directly, melodiously, and with noble simplicity, so much for the faults, which must be faced and overlooked before one finds the treasure that is hidden in Browning's poetry, of all the poets in our literature, no other is so completely, so consciously, so magnificently a teacher of men, he feels his mission of faith and courage in a world of doubt and timidity, for thirty years he faced indifference or ridicule, working bravely and cheerfully the while, until he made the world recognize and follow him. The spirit of his whole life is well expressed in his Paracelsus, written when he was only twenty-two years old, I see my way as birds their trackless way. I shall arrive. What time? What circuit first? I ask not, 
but unless God sent his hail or blinding fireballs, sleet or stifling snow, in some time, his good time, I shall arrive, he guides me and the bird, in his good time, he is not, like so many others, an entertaining poet, one cannot read him after dinner, or when settled in a comfortable easy chair, one must sit up, and think, and be alert when he reads Browning, if we accept these conditions, we shall probably find that Browning is the most stimulating poet in our language, his influence upon our life is positive and tremendous, his strength, his joy of life, his robust faith, and his invincible optimism enter into us, making us different and better men after reading him, and perhaps the best thing we can say of Browning is that his thought is slowly but surely taking possession of all well-educated men and women. Life. Browning's father was outwardly a businessman, a clerk for fifty years in the Bank of England, inwardly he was an interesting combination of the scholar and the artist, with the best tastes of both. His mother was a sensitive, musical woman, evidently very lovely in character, the daughter of a German shipowner and merchant who had settled in Scotland. She was of Celtic descent, and Carlyle describes her as the true type of a Scottish gentlewoman. From his neck down, Browning was the typical Briton, short, stocky, large-chested, robust, but even in the lifeless portrait his face changes as we view it from different angles. Now it is like an English businessman, now like a German scientist, and now it has a curious suggestion of Uncle Remus, these being, no doubt. So many different reflections of his mixed and unremembered ancestors. He was born in Camberwell, on the outskirts of London, in 1812, from his home and from his first school, at Peckham. He could see London, and the city lights by night and the smoky chimneys by day had the same powerful fascination for the child that the woods and fields and the beautiful country had for his friend Tennyson. His schooling was short and desultory, his education being attended to by private tutors and by his father who left the boy largely to follow his own inclination. Like the young Milton, Browning was fond of music, and in many of his poems, especially in A.B.T. Vogler and A Toccata of Gallopies, he interprets the musical temperament better, perhaps, than any other writer in our literature. But unlike Milton, through whose poetry there runs a great melody, music seems to have had no consistent effect upon his verse which is often so jarring that one must wonder how a musical ear could have endured it. Like Tennyson, this boy found his work very early, and for fifty years hardly a week passed that he did not write poetry. He began at six to produce verses, in imitation of Byron, but fortunately this early work has been lost. Then he fell under the influence of Shelley, and his first known work, Pauline 1833, must be considered as a tribute to Shelley and his poetry. Tennyson's earliest work, Poems by Two Brothers, had been published and well paid for, five years before, but Browning could find no publisher who would even consider Pauline, and the work was published by means of money furnished by an indulgent relative, this poem received scant notice from the reviewers, who had pounced like hawks on a dovecot upon Tennyson's first two modest volumes, two years later appeared Paracelsus, and then his tragedy Strafford was put upon the stage, but not till Sordella was published, in 1840, did he attract attention enough to be denounced for the obscurity and vagaries of his style. Six years later, in 1846, he suddenly became famous, not because he finished in that year his Bells and Pomegranates which is Browning's symbolic name for poetry and thought, or singing and sermonizing, 
but because he eloped with the best-known literary woman in England, Elizabeth Barrett, whose fame was for many years, both before and after her marriage, much greater than Browning's, and who was at first considered superior to Tennyson, thereafter, until his own work compelled attention. He was known chiefly as the man who married Elizabeth Barrett. For years this lady had been an almost helpless invalid, and it seemed a quixotic thing when Browning, having failed to gain her family's consent to the marriage, carried her off romantically. Love and Italy proved better than her physicians, and for fifteen years Browning and his wife lived an ideally happy life in Pisa and in Florence. The exquisite romance of their love is preserved in Mrs. Browning's sonnets from the Portuguese and in the volume of letters recently published, wonderful letters, but so tender and intimate that it seems almost a sacrilege for inquisitive eyes to read them. Mrs. Browning died in Florence in 1861. The loss seemed at first too much to bear, and Browning fled with his son to England. For the remainder of his life he lived alternately in London and in various parts of Italy, especially at the Palazzo Rizzonico, in Venice which is now an object of pilgrimage to almost every tourist who visits the beautiful city. Wherever he went he mingled with men and women, sociable, well-dressed, courteous, loving crowds and popular applause, the very reverse of his friend Tennyson. His earlier work had been much better appreciated in America than in England, but with the publication of The Ring and the Book, in 1868, he was at last recognized by his countrymen as one of the greatest of English poets. He died in Venice. On December 12, 1889, the same day that saw the publication of his last work, a Solanda, though Italy offered him an honored resting place, England claimed him for her own, and he lies buried beside Tennyson in Westminster Abbey. The spirit of his whole life is magnificently expressed in his own lines. In the epilogue of his last book, one who never turned his back, but marched breast forward, never doubted clouds would break, never dreamed. Though right word or wordisted, wrong would triumph. Held we fall to rise, are baffled to fight better, sleep to wake. Works. A glance at even the titles which Browning gave to his best-known volumes Dramatic Lyrics 1842, Dramatic Romances and Lyrics 1845, Men and Women 1853, Dramatis Persona 1864 will suggest how strong the dramatic element is in all his work. Indeed. All his poems may be divided into three classes, pure dramas, like Strafford and a blot in the scutcheon, dramatic narratives, like Dippipasses, which are dramatic in form, but were not meant to be acted, and dramatic lyrics, like The Last Ride Together, which are short poems expressing some strong personal emotion, or describing some dramatic episode in human life, and in which the hero himself generally tells the story, though Browning is often compared with Shakespeare. The reader will understand that he has very little of Shakespeare's dramatic talent. He cannot bring a group of people together and let the actions and words of his characters show us the comedy and tragedy of human life. Neither can the author be disinterested, satisfied, as Shakespeare was, with life itself. Without drawing any moral conclusions, Browning has always a moral ready, and insists upon giving us his own views of life, which Shakespeare never does. His dramatic power lies in depicting what he himself calls the history of a soul. Sometimes, as in Paracelsus, he endeavors to trace the progress of the human spirit. More often he takes some dramatic moment in life, some crisis in the ceaseless struggle between good and evil, and describes with wonderful insight the hero's own thoughts and feelings, but he almost invariably tells us how, 
at such and such a point, the good or the evil in his hero must inevitably have triumphed, and generally, as in, my last duchess, the speaker adds a word here and there, aside from the story, which unconsciously shows the kind of man he is, it is this power of revealing the soul from within that causes Browning to fascinate those who study him long enough, his range is enormous, and brings all sorts and conditions of men under analysis, the musician in, A.B.T. Vogler, the artist in, Andrea del Sardo, the early Christian in, A Death in the Desert, the Arab horseman in, Mutik, the sailor in, Hervé Kiel, the medieval knight in, Child Roland, the Hebrew in, Saul, the Greek in, The Lost Island's Adventurer, the monster in, Caliban, the immortal dead in, Karshish, all these and a hundred more histories of the soul show Browning's marvelous versatility. It is this great range of sympathy with many different types of life that constitutes Browning's chief likeness to Shakespeare, though otherwise there is no comparison between the two men. If we separate all these dramatic poems into three main periods, the early, from 1833 to 1841, the middle, from 1841 to 1868, and the late, from 1868 to 1889, the work of the beginner will be much more easily designated of his early soul studies, Pauline 1833, Paracelsus 1835, and Sordello 1840, little need be said here, except perhaps this, that if we begin with these works, we shall probably never read anything else by Browning, and that were a pity, it is better to leave these obscure works until his better poems have so attracted us to Browning that we will cheerfully endure his worst faults for the sake of his undoubted virtues. The same criticism applies, though in less degree, to his first drama, Strafford 1837, which belongs to the early period of his work. The merciless criticism which greeted Sordello had a wholesome effect on Browning, as is shown in the better work of his second period. Moreover, his new power was developing rapidly, as may be seen by comparing the eight numbers of his famous Bells and Pomegranates series 1841-1846 with his earlier work. Thus, the first number of this wonderful series, published in 1841, contains Pippa Passes, which island on the whole, the most perfect of his longer poems, and another number contains a blot in the scutcheon, which is the most readable of his dramas, even a beginner must be thrilled by the beauty and the power of these two works. Two other noteworthy dramas of the period are Colombi's Birthday 1844 and In a Balcony 1855, which, however, met with scant appreciation on the stage, having too much subtle analysis and too little action to satisfy the public. Nearly all his best lyrics, dramas, and dramatic poems belong to this middle period of labor, and when The Ring and the Book appeared, in 1868, he had given to the world the noblest expression of his poetic genius. In the third period, beginning when Browning was nearly 60 years old, he wrote even more industriously than before and published on an average nearly a volume of poetry a year, such volumes as Fifine at the Fair, Red Cotton Nightcap Country, The In Album, Jocoseria, and many others, show how Browning gains steadily in the power of revealing the hidden springs of human action, but he often rambles most tiresomely, and in general his work loses in sustained interest. It is perhaps significant that most of his best work was done under Mrs. Browning's influence. What to read? Of the short miscellaneous poems there is such an unusual variety that one must hesitate a little in suggesting this or that to the beginner's attention. My star, Evelyn Hope. Wanting is what? Home thoughts from abroad. Meeting at night. 
one word more, an exquisite tribute to his dead wife. Prospice, look forward, songs from Pippa Passes, various love poems like, By the Fireside, and, The Last Ride Together, The Inimitable, Pied Piper, and the ballads like, Hervé Riel, and, How They Brought the Good News. These are a mere suggestion, expressing only the writer's personal preference, but a glance at the contents of Browning's volumes will reveal scores of other poems, which another writer might recommend as being better in themselves or more characteristic of Browning. Among Browning's dramatic soul studies there is also a very wide choice. Andrea del Sardo is one of the best, revealing as it does the strength and the weakness of the perfect painter, whose love for a soulless woman with a pretty face saddens his life and hampers his best work. Next in importance to Andrea stands an epistle, reciting the experiences of Karshish, an Arab physician, which is one of the best examples of Browning's peculiar method of presenting the truth. The half-scoffing half-earnest, and wholly bewildered state of this oriental scientist's mind is clearly indicated between the lines of his letter to his old master, his description of Lazarus, whom he meets by chance, and of the state of mind of one who, having seen the glories of immortality, must live again in the midst of the jumble of trivial and stupendous things which constitute our life, forms one of the most original and suggestive poems in our literature. My Last Duchess is a short but very keen analysis of the soul of a selfish man, who reveals his character unconsciously by his words of praise concerning his dead wife's picture. In The Bishop Orders His Tomb, we have another extraordinarily interesting revelation of the mind of a vain and worldly man, this time a churchman, whose words tell you far more than he dreams about his own character. A.B.T. Vogler, undoubtedly one of Browning's finest poems, is the study of a musician's soul. Mulekit gives us the soul of an Arab, vain and proud of his vast horse, which was never beaten in a race. A rival steals the horse and rides away upon her back, but, used as she is to her master's touch, she will not show her best pace to the stranger. Mulekit rides up furiously, but instead of striking the thief from his saddle, he boasts about his peerless mare, saying that if a certain spot on her neck were touched with the rain, she could never be overtaken. Instantly the robber touches the spot, and the mare answers with a burst of speed that makes pursuit hopeless. Mulekit has lost his mare, but he has kept his pride in the unbeaten one, and is satisfied. Rabbi Ben Ezra, which refuses analysis, and which must be read entire to be appreciated, is perhaps the most quoted of all Browning's works, and contains the best expression of his own faith in life, both here and hereafter. All these wonderful poems are, again, merely a suggestion, they indicate simply the works to which one reader turns when he feels mentally vigorous enough to pick up Browning, another list of soul studies, citing, a Takata of Galapies, a Grammarian's Funeral, Fralipo Lippi, Saul, Cleon, a Death in the Desert, and, Soliloquy of the Spanish Cloister, might, in another's judgment, be more interesting and suggestive, Pippa passes among Browning's longer poems there are two, at least, that well deserve our study, Pippa Passes, aside from its rare poetical qualities, is a study of unconscious influence, the idea of the poem was suggested to Browning while listening to a gypsy girl singing in the woods near his home, but he transfers the scene of the action to the little mountain town of Asolo, in Italy, Pippa is a little silk weaver, who goes out in the morning to enjoy her one holiday of the whole year, as she thinks of her own happiness she is vaguely wishing that she might share it and do some good, then, with her childish imagination, 
she begins to weave a little romance in which she shares in the happiness of the four greatest and happiest people in a solo. It never occurs to her that perhaps there is more of misery than of happiness in the four great ones of whom she dreams, and so she goes on her way singing. The years at the spring and days at the morn, mornings at seven, the hillsides to pearled, the larks on the wing, the snails on the thorn, God's in his heaven all's right with the world. Fate wills it that the words and music of her little songs should come to the ears of four different groups of people at the moment when they are facing the greatest crises of their lives, and turn the scale from evil to good. But Kippa knows nothing of this. She enjoys her holiday, and goes to bed still singing, entirely ignorant of the good she has done in the world, with one exception. It is the most perfect of all Browning's works. At best it is not easy, nor merely entertaining reading, but it richly repays whatever hours we spend in studying it. The Ring and the Book is Browning's masterpiece. It is an immense poem, twice as long as Paradise Lost, and longer by some two thousand lines than the Iliad, and before we begin the undoubted task of reading it, we must understand that there is no interesting story or dramatic development to carry us along. In the beginning we have an outline of the story, such as it is a horrible story of Count Guido's murder of his beautiful young wife, and Browning tells us in detail just when and how he found a book containing the record of the crime and the trial. There the story element ends, and the symbolism of the book begins. The title of the poem is explained by the habit of the old Etruscan goldsmiths who, in making one of their elaborately chased rings, would mix the pure gold with an alloy, in order to harden it. When the ring was finished, Acid was poured upon it, and the acid ate out the alloy, leaving the beautiful design in pure gold. Browning purposes to follow the same plan with his literary material, which consists simply of the evidence given at the trial of Guido in Rome. In 1698, he intends to mix a poet's fancy with the crude facts, and create a beautiful and artistic work. The result of Browning's purpose is a series of monologues in which the same story is retold nine different times by the different actors in the drama, the Count, the young wife, the suspected priest, the lawyers, the Pope who presides at the trial, each tells the story, and each unconsciously reveals the depths of his own nature in the recital. The most interesting of the characters are Guido, the husband, who changes from bold defiance to abject fear, Caponsacchi, the young priest, who aids the wife in her flight from her brutal husband and is unjustly accused of false motives, Pompilia, the young wife, one of the noblest characters in literature, fit in all respects to rank with Shakespeare's great heroines, and the Pope, a splendid figure, the strongest of all Browning's masculine characters, when we have read the story, as told by these four different actors, we have the best of the poet's work, and of the most original poem in our language, Browning's place and message, Browning's place in our literature will be better appreciated by comparison with his friend Tennyson, whom we have just studied. In one respect, at least, these poets are in perfect accord. Each finds in love the supreme purpose and meaning of life. In other respects, especially in their methods of approaching the truth, the two men are the exact opposites. Tennyson is first the artist and then the teacher, but with Browning the message is always the important thing, and he is careless, too careless of the form in which it is expressed. Again, Tennyson is under the influence of the Romantic Revival, and chooses his subjects daintily, but all's fish that comes to Browning's net. He takes comely and ugly subjects with equal pleasure, and aims to show that truth lies hidden in both the evil and the good. 
This contrast is all the more striking when we remember that Browning's essentially scientific, 